$5 to Donuts with your host, Steve Portugal. Welcome to Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where I talk with the people who lead user research in their organization. I read recently about a new genre of TikTok videos that feature people applying makeup while lip syncing to stand up comedy routines by John Mulaney. I believe that TikTok has its roots as a platform for lip sync performances, and of course, makeup tutorials and demonstrations are their own thing on the internet. But how do we end up with the combination? Not just one, but a whole series. How did this come about? Why are people doing it? And are there other niche subgenres or patterns that this relates to? Even if we're tempted to dismiss these behaviors as just a bunch of people being weird, we need to be doing the research to understand how and why this is happening. Sure, people at TikTok should know how people are using their service. But insight about this is also valuable to other platforms like YouTube and Twitter and Instagram. How could this information give you a new perspective on user behaviors if you work at Dropbox? Or if you work for Michelin, either their travel department or their tire division? How could nationwide insurance make use of this? Our culture swerves and leaps, and when these emergent behaviors poke their head up through into the mainstream, it's an invitation to take note and to be curious. This is what clients hire me to do, whether it's to be the one that leads the investigation to unlock the motivations and desires of current and prospective customers, or to be someone who helps their team as they themselves dig into the hidden behaviors and objectives of users. I help companies look at their own organization, their culture, and their processes to help set the stage for this kind of discovery work to flourish and have impact. If you're a fan of this podcast, then remember you can support the podcast by supporting me and my practice. Please reach out to me at portugal.com and let's find a way to work together. Okay, it's time for my interview with Amber Lindholm. She's the head of design research at Duo Security. Well, Amber, thank you for being on Dollars to Donuts. It's really great to get to speak with you. Hey, Steve. It's great to be here. Hey, I guess I should have said, hey, hey, Amber. So (laughs) I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself. So I'm Amber Lindholm. I'm currently the head of design research at Duo Security, which is part of Cisco. And my background is in design, both kind of traditional print design, moving into interaction design, and then design research, um, which I practiced uh, before, you know, moving into more leadership positions. What does Duo Security do? Duo Security, we provide various security products that help protect our um, customers' basically access to data. So our core product is a multi-factor authentication product. So when you're going to, let's say, log into, you know, a tool that you use at work, you know, after you do your password, you get some sort of maybe a push notification or something that verifies that it's you. So we help protect organizations and their data as well as individuals. So if I am a consumer and I go to my bank and they said, oh, we're going to send you a text message to prove that you're you before we can let you access your account. Is that the kind of tools that you're providing? Yeah, that's that's a great example. A lot of folks are familiar with, with this through like financial institutions and We basically have created a product that's super easy for organizations to roll out and get folks enrolled in, but it does that where it's it's verifying through a second method that you are actually who you say you are. Eventually, let's get to talk more about the work that you are doing at Duo Security, but 
since you said a little bit about some of what your background was, it'd be great to just hear more about, like you mentioned, print design. So what's kind of the arc or the history for you from when you got into figuring out your profession to you know how you moved to where you are now? So I started out, as I was mentioning, in graphic design. So I was trained, um, I went to University of Illinois. We did really kind of what I would call more classical, like Bauhaus, you know, educational style, learning all about formal typography and form and color. Um, and so after school, I followed that path. I found at work with a PR agency at first and then in-house at a nonprofit called Rotary International. And this was up in Chicago. And I spent my time, you know, designing brochures, you know, reports, invitations, billboards, all kinds of print materials. And during that time, I just remember there was this particular project I was working on where we translated most of our materials into nine languages. So it was going out around the world. And I was creating these, um, they were kind of these little packets that had a CD that had files for the different Rotary clubs to produce their own kind of marketing materials. And I worked with the translators to, you know, translate the copy and on the files and the file names. But after that, I really didn't know when those things were sent out in the world, if they were going to be used properly, if they were going to meet their needs or expectations. And at that time, I started searching around and trying to think, you know, I, I feel like something's missing. And I came across, you know, the terminology then was human-centered design. And it was just a revelation for me. It seemed like, you know, you can create these things, but if you don't understand how people are going to use them and what they need, you're really going to miss the mark. So that was a catalyst for me to continue like my education. So I found a grad program um, at Institute of Design in Chicago, where I went and I learned, you know, how to do research. You know, they taught all about human factors, all, all kinds of approaches pulled from social sciences, very qualitative in nature. I uh, learned about design strategy. I learned more about interaction design. And that was really, I, I really felt like I found my sweet spot. I loved the research side of it. I loved going out and talking to people and trying to understand, you know, who they are and how they behave and why. So when I graduated, actually right before I graduated, I did a couple of things. So one of the things was I I wanted to do a little bit of living abroad. So I went for a year to New Zealand and I worked um, inside the government there. So did a project looking, it was more like a service design customer experience project, which was really great. It was neat to get that um, government experience. Came back and my husband and I moved to Austin, just sight unseen, moved down here. And I've had a couple of different jobs here in Austin. I started out at Frog and I was still mostly focused on design. I was doing interaction design, like mobile tablet type design. But then I started adding in the research projects. And that, again, really flourished there and loved doing that work. Got to do some research in China and other places. And uh, this was more contextual work, like going in people's homes, spending a lot of time with them to understand uh, their world. And a couple other things I did after that, I went and worked in healthcare for a year, trying to do similar kind of research, understanding, for instance, I did a project about the new parent experience. And then I went back to consulting um, to a, a consultancy called Project 202. So spent, you know, quite a few years actually being more of a consultant role working across many industries, um, which was fun and started leading a team at Project 202 uh, research and insights team. So we would work on, um, you know, tons of projects looking at really large customer journeys. And then after consulting for so long, I decided that I wanted to really understand the other side. So to go more in-house, to work at a product company, 
So I worked at Atlassian and led a design and research team for a product called Stride, which is a video and chat tool. And then I moved to Duo, where I'm at now. And again, I lead the research team there. Love helping our team grow. Love the side of uh, research that really has an impact and provides value. So that's kind of my story. Talk about, so there's, there's two sort of vectors that I hear. One is in-house and consulting as different perspectives, but you've also talked about research and design. And it sounds like yeah. over the course of your career, your title at least has, well, I guess you also said some of the work you're doing might lean more heavily towards one or the other. It's hard to ask the question in an open-ended way as I want to, so I'll just try the leading version. We think of research and design like they're different words. We call them different things. Sometimes they're different kind of career paths. But one of the threads of your narrative that is compelling to me is that you've kind of worked with both those pieces of research and design. I guess I'm wondering when you think about, for yourself at least, and where you're contributing, where you're adding value, or how you put all these pieces together, what's the relationship between the kind of the R word research and the D word design in your makeup and your skill set? I think they really complement each other. I think it makes me, as a designer, it made me a stronger designer to have that, you know, research mind. And as a researcher, it made me stronger because I could really make sure that the research I was doing was framed around and presented in a way that provided information relevant to the folks having to make decisions. So I I always think about that. It's like when we're trying to figure out what to research and what to prioritize, there's always a whole set of questions. And there are decisions that are having to be made that some are more ambiguous questions where you really don't have a lot of information. Some are really high risk questions. So you want to make sure you're understanding those and providing that information because people are having to make big decisions and tactical decisions and thinking about how you frame that research and present it back to folks or include them in that process is really important. So I think understanding how designers work and also, you know, now knowing how product companies work, understanding the questions that product managers are trying to answer, engineers are trying to answer, and helping them actually articulate those questions is something that I strive to do. So I think they just really complement each other. The way you describe how you want to make sure that the research you do connects and supports I hear an echo of your brochure project where you were <laughs> you wanted that context to make sure that you knew that the work you were doing was going to have the outcomes and have the results. It sounds very similar. That kind of questioning of, hey, who's doing what and how do we make sure that we help them do what they're going to do? That, that applies to your, quote, users as well as your, quote, stakeholders or, or colleagues. Yeah, absolutely. We spend a lot of time, like when I'm working with the researchers on my team and we're looking at a new project or we're looking across the projects that we could support over a quarter or whatever it is, we're looking exactly at that. Like, where can we have the most impact? Where's the greatest need? Sometimes we're looking at, is there a new project spinning up? Is there a new product manager coming in? Is there you know, a team that's just starting out that's never gone through this process before? Um, We really like to prioritize those kind of things as well so that we help get them off on the right foot so that they do frame those questions really well. We help show them a good process to follow. And those are really, really fruitful projects. What's the split between proactive, you identifying what research you want to do versus something that's more reactive where there's requests coming in? Hey, can you help us do this? That's interesting to try to suss out. I think it's it's a little bit hard because so at Duo, we have, we're part of the product design team. So there's about 30 folks on that team. 
research team. I have uh, four researchers on the team and a research uh, coordinator who helps do you know all of our recruiting and scheduling and all kinds of ops stuff. And so none of the researchers are dedicated to a particular product because Duo does have multiple products. We kind of stay as a little bit of a hub, but we start to embed, like I was saying, okay, let's kind of embed over here on this team. Let's embed over the, on this team for this particular project or this time span. And so the researchers are communicating with the designers. I'm communicating with the design managers and, and product managers to learn you know, what their roadmap looks like or what kind of questions they have coming up. So I end up really driving the prioritization of the work we're doing based on all those conversations, looking at the priorities of the business and, you know, kind of larger trajectory of where the business is going and make the decisions of like where we can actually prioritize our time and where we're going to have the most impact. But we do also get uh, requests. So we work with folks outside of the kind of R&D process as well. We've been working with our creative team on um, website design. We've been working with technical communications folks in our like knowledge community. So those people will come to us with requests. Um, we hold office hours every Monday. So sometimes we'll just provide some support or advice or kind of review things. And other times we'll decide to take on a full project. Can you maybe rewind a little bit and talk about how you came to Duo and what was research like there? Maybe what was the context that you that was established when you joined and what some of the progress and evolution has been since you've been leading the team? So Duo, I guess the design team was formed about five years ago. And so Sally Carson's our head of design. So she was hired to come in and you know build up this team. And really early on, she wanted to make sure that research was part of it. So one of the, maybe the second our third hire was a researcher and his name's uh, Mark Thompson Kohler. He's still with the, with the team and he came in. And at that point, because design was so new and research was so new, the focus was, you know, on really rapid like usability testing, right? So like every two weeks we're going to do testing. We've got people, you know, what do you want to test? And so the company was a startup. It was a lot smaller. Um, and the idea was just sort of this like rapid, um, more evaluative type research and that went on for a while. Um, and then the team, uh, Mark, developed a set of personas that got embedded across the entire duo organization. You know, as the team continued to grow, it was still kind of like a one-person research shop. Duo, th- the way the design team has grown, though, designers are hired that also have an interest and skill set in research. So designers also do research. When I came in, another researcher had been hired. So there were two researchers and there wasn't what you would call like a research team yet. So when I came in, we decided, okay, let's sit down and really talk about, you know, who we are, what's our mission, what's our value, what are the strengths that we have going for us and the gaps and and how do we want to move this team forward? And we did, you know, some kind of offsite exercises and, and that kind of thing. And we started at basics. So there was a ton of knowledge. There was a ton of things that had been done. And we're like, let's make sure like we have it, right? So that first quarter was a lot of pull it together in in a place where people can find all of the research that's been done, document some of the tools and templates we have so that other people, you know, on the team can can use this stuff. And then we wanted to make sure that instead of just focusing on the evaluative work, you know, we were allowing the designers to really pick up a lot of that and that we could move into more foundational kind of generative type research projects. And so that's what we did after that first quarter, getting all those foundations in place, doing some additional trainings with the design team. The researchers then were able to focus on these more 
larger, more strategic type research projects. And then we added in research ops. We hired a research coordinator to help us so that the researchers weren't spending, you know, half their time coordinating, recruiting, maintaining our database of participants and all that good stuff. So she came in last summer. Um, Her name's Annie. And she's been just a fantastic value to the whole team. And then I hired two more researchers this spring. And now everyone, you know, sort of has their own area that they're working on right now. And um, it's been great. It's just been fantastic. You're describing something that I, I think is a pattern in a lot of organizations that give the designers the tools to do some of the evaluative work and, you know, a shift in what the research team itself specializes in. What's been the outcome for the designers or the design work that they're doing as you've empowered them to do that evaluative work? I think it's great. I mean, I think rather than, you know, us being like, no, we can't help you and no, the, you know, those questions aren't going to get answered. The designers do have the tool set available. And we, you know, depending on somebody's comfort level, or, you know, how much they've done this in the past will provide more or less support, right? So like I said, it's kind of like reviewing the plans, reviewing the script, doing test runs, maybe we'll moderate a session, and then they pick it up after that. Or some folks, you know, they've done this many times, and they can run more fully. But they are the experts in sort of this area that they're working on. um, And they have the relationship with their product manager and their engineers, and they can take all of that, you know, directly back into the work um, that they're doing. So I think it's, I think it's great. You know, I always have some, some hesitancy if it's the subjectivity that might come out of somebody who's testing, you know, their own work. So we do kind of, you know, talk about that, keep an eye out for that. But so far, like it's, it's been great and allowed our researchers to, like I said, focus on not just like those larger research projects, but a researcher on my team, Liz Donovan right now is helping kind of consult across six or seven teams um, for this larger project. And so she has really good line of sight around the different questions being asked and helping people, you know, make sure that they're all kind of sharing the insights they're learning across those teams. So it's allowed us to really level up our scope of influence. That's a great explanation. And I, I feel like there's an implicit value judgment around what kind of research is cool and fun and worth our time. And that if we can offload some of these tasks to the lower value tasks to other people, then we can work on the cool stuff. Not that anyone has ever said that, but it feels like that's lurking underneath this move to kind of, you know, empower people to do the evaluative work. But I think what I'm hearing from you is in a lot of ways, those people are better positioned to do that work because they're very close to the problem and they can kind of zoom in on how they can get the most actionable results and, and do do so maybe more quickly. And that research, I mean, I think your, your point about having influence. So the, the, the work that you're doing is, is more around the organization and, and more strategic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's kind of what you're positioned to do. Yeah. So besides, you know, helping bring those uh, designers together, Liz is helping to align PMs as well, or kind of like share across PMs. And um, she's running a set of like metrics workshops across those teams, like a created a a standard sort of workshop to help us define UX metrics, um, look for signals and define those metrics. And so she's bringing those to each of those teams. So now, again, like it's a more kind of strategic view across those, but then we're still able to weigh in on and influence the, the type of research, the type of questions and even the synthesis of the research that's happening across those teams. What are some other things that you're doing to, uh, whether it's around influence or, you know, kind of bringing the customers into the organization? 
when we set out on our kind of mission and the things that we do, you know, obviously sort of like executing and running this kind of product focused or foundational focused research is really important. But sort of the other half of it that we wanted to make clear about was like our role in helping to get folks closer to the customer to bring that context to them, um, to keep the customer top of mind. And at Duo, frankly, it's pretty easy because the organization across the board is extremely customer centric. We're not like begging for people to listen to us. Um, the value of research is really understood. It's be- it's asked for actually. Like people are really interested um, in, in hearing more about the context. Our PMs, you know, they're fantastic. They out they're out there. They do tons of customer calls. But there's still, as we've continued to grow. The risk that we identified is a couple of things. Like early on, I mentioned that there was a set of personas that were created, and these get referred to all the time across the board uh, in big meetings, you know, big all hands and all of that. Uh, Salespeople reference them, our customer success people reference them. But as people join the company, as we were kind of in hyper growth mode, the real deep understanding of those personas may not have persisted, right? So we wanted to take a step back and say, you know, how do we as a research team help other folks have the type of context that we have? So Mark, who developed the personas, um, we have a program set up where, you know, as new hires come in, he presents uh, something called Personas 101 to make sure that those are really top of mind and understood. And we do a deep dive session on one of the more key personas. He also does something called these fireside chats. So we just chat with different folks. So for instance, different IT administrators or help desk uh, managers or help desk folks or CISOs will set up you know, an hour long chat to just learn about their day. And that's open invitation for folks to listen in on. And then we also, with all of our research sessions and things, they're open for folks to come and listen to. So it's very much accessible. We have a research calendar everyone can see and they can pop in on different things. Uh, and lots of folks take advantage of that. And then I think another thing that we we wanted to do was make sure that we had created additional sort of artifacts and frameworks for people to think about when they're making decisions. So we took all this data that had been collected over across, you know, about four years of tests and interviews and ran these large workshops. And Mark, you know, synthesized all that information into a set of design principles that are persona specific. So they're not these like really super high level principles that are hard to make decisions with. They're very applicable to making, you know, decisions on UI, on making decisions on copy you might be creating. And so those principles are referenced by, you know, designers, they're used in critique sessions, they're referenced by product managers as they're talking about their roadmaps, um, folks like technical communications and things like that. So the personas and the principles, they're not just an artifact that just kind of sits on the table. We bring them to the forefront in a lot of different ways. Could you genericize one of the principles just to give a sense of the granularity of it? Yeah. So for our IT administrators, for instance, one of the principles is around the ability to take action. And so anytime we're making a decision about something in our UI or a flow, if there's a dead end that that person cannot actually, let's say they're seeing some kind of thing that may alert them to a security problem. If they cannot immediately take action on that item, then we're not meeting that principle. It's very important for folks to be able to move from information that they're seeing directly into action. And then like for our end users, 
one of our principles is reduce friction to the extreme. So we're not in a the kind of product where, you know, you're you're trying to create a sticky situation or someone's in your product, you're trying to actually minimize their interaction with your product because what they're actually trying to do is their, you know, get into their work application. So we think a lot about that. Like how do we reduce friction to that extreme? So those are specific, as you said, and meant to be actionable. Yeah. And how many principles in a project like this, how many principles should one be trying to come up with? Oh, what a question, Steve. Um, (laughs) No, I I think um, we narrowed it down to five principles for our two main personas. And that I think is a good number, like three is too few, eight's too many (laughs) kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But five has been like the perfect number. And when we first rolled these out, we we did some fun things too, where we created some really neat posters that we put out in all the offices. You know, we socialized them with people, we brought them around to meetings, we personified the principles even, uh, which was really fun. But yeah, I think you gotta, you can't have too many. (laughs) How do you personify a principle? (laughs) So one of the designers on our team named Andrea actually came up with this idea to, you know, get designers more familiar with all of these. And so each of the principles, um, one of us was given and you had to basically just act like that principle. So we had to create a character and in this sort of mock critique, we had to just care about that particular principle. So it was actually ended up to be quite fun to do. It sounds like a good improv game. It was very fun. Just going back to one of the points you made was that this is a an organizational culture that believes in research and as you said asks for research. Do you have any perspective on for Duo how that came to be? I imagine it's a couple of different factors. I mean, I think that the folks Doug and Jono who co-founded the company, that was like a big thing. Like they really cared about the end user experience. They cared about creating a company that was different than the other security companies out there at the time. Their whole mission is about democratizing security. So making it easy and effective was there from the beginning. And it wasn't just, you know, something they were saying, it was something they really believed in. They saw how complicated, you know, so many security products were. And they wanted to make sure that when these products are out there, and it's, you know, an IT administrator, it's not somebody with, you know, a cybersecurity background or anything that these more generalist folks can protect their organization. So I do think a lot of it came from the founders, and then the folks that they hired. Um, So like our head of engineering, Chester, who we product design actually reports up through engineering, he's completely supportive of design. You know, we hire engineers that have that kind of mindset also of like customer experience. Um, So I think it just kind of permeates through the culture. And as you said, starts at the beginning and starts at the top. I think so. I mean, that's that's just my impression. I mean, I wasn't there at the beginning, but I see that legacy and I see that through the people that were hired on that continued to be in leadership. I I have so many interactions in so many different venues where somebody who maybe is at an individual contributor level sees that their culture is not like the one that you're describing and they're being blocked in a lot of different ways. And their question is often like, well, what can I do to succeed this way when these things are kind of arrayed against me? 
I don't know if you've encountered that or heard that question. Personally, I find it challenging to give them super actionable advice when I feel like you're describing, you know, hey, it starts at the top. This is how this company was founded. They've grown and hired in support of that. And if you're in a situation where that hasn't happened, it's an interesting challenge for people that aren't embedded in those kinds of organizations to make those kinds of changes and, and advocate for that. Yeah, I think especially like to your point, if you're not at a leadership level where you have a, if your scope of influence is just with your immediate project team, it's going to be really hard to sort of like level that up through the organization. You've named uh, some of the people on your team and the kinds of contributions they've made. And I'm just wondering how you think about, and I think you said you just, you hired two people not that long ago to join the team. Yeah. Yeah. Can you describe a little bit about your approach to finding people, what what that looks like in terms of seeing, hey, this is someone that would fit with our organization? We have a probably what's a fairly standard interview process, but I'll just describe that and then sort of what kind of questions I'm asking and looking for. But I typically, you know, reach out to folks. I have like an initial conversation with them just to understand what they're looking for in, a, in an organization or what their kind of career goals are just to make sure it aligns with, you know, the kind of role we have open. Then we do a longer interview and we use, again, pretty standard like behavioral interview questions to ask people to describe real scenarios. So behavioral interviewing, it's kind of like doing user research or like doing design research where you're really trying to get somebody to give you very very specific real examples, like to tell a story, um, because you want to understand what the situation was, how they thought about it, and how they uh, reacted to it versus like a generalized answer. So we follow that. Um, I put together like a set of questions. And then once folks kind of go through that, um, they go into like a two hour we, we do a bit of a portfolio review. And then a final round interview is more like a four hour thing. And we have designers in there. We have PMs come in, um, sometimes engineering managers. So different folks who they might you know, interact with in their day-to-day participate in that more long kind of final interview. But some of the things that I'm always looking out for, like obviously, you know, that they can do the work, but the way that they present the work is really important. So you know, coming from a consulting background I and design background, I do put a lot of emphasis on how people share their work and how clear it is and how compelling it is. How do they tie that story together? How do they tell high level insights, but get into enough details to, to really support and paint the picture of why that insight matters? So that's a big part of it. And then with the behavioral interview questions, I'm always looking at, can someone learn from a situation? Like, can they, I don't want to say like admit they're wrong, but if they encountered something where it went wrong, how did they go about learning, growing, and kind of improving for the next time? I'm also looking at people that are willing to ask questions. So I really love hearing the questions. I always leave a lot of time for folks to ask me questions. So do they have really good questions? Um, What are the kind of topics they're thinking about? Are they people who are going to come into an organization and be really curious and willing to ask people questions and not just kind of sit and be scared if they don't know the answer? Trying to think what else. We ask questions, you know, around working in diverse teams. That's really important to us and just how they kind of collaborate and, and work with others. 
Yeah, I want to ask about one of the things you mentioned, telling a story about an insight and you know, help it come to life. And you've worked in consulting, so you've experienced some version of this, I think. I mean, I've, in some ways, I think I've grappled with this for much of my career, that there are things that happen over the course of a project that are galvanizing, that just change everything. But to tell somebody else outside that organization, that's a harder story to tell. So I'm wondering, what are the best practices for that? How do I make a story about an experience I had in the past come to life for an audience that didn't have the assumptions, the biases, the worries, the, you know, all the sort of things that make it so impactful? How do I help somebody else understand that part of the insight? Well, so what you just said is exactly what I would expect is that, you know, folks that know how to tell a story up front, they give me enough context about the organization or the problem or the assumptions that were there in the beginning and what kind of impact their research had and setting the stage of that context. It's not just about the project, right? Exactly what you're saying. Like every single organization is unique. (laughs) Every single set of people has different assumptions about things. The challenges that someone might be up against within that organization are going to be different. So a really good researcher is going to help you understand that context of why the thing that they're telling you matters. I think that's the sign of of a really good researcher is that it can never just be about, you know, research for research sake. Like this is a cool project. This is a neat thing. I really want to, you know, go in depth and understand perceptions of XYZ with these people. If you don't have that ability to understand the organizational and business context and the types of decisions that are having to be made every day by the rest of the folks in your organization, your research isn't going to have an impact. And so I really listen for that in interviews. Are people able to help me understand how they made an impact and how they understand that larger ecosystem that they're working in. So back to the archetype I was describing, the person that approaches me and I think all of us with, here's why I'm unable to have impact. Here's how my culture just doesn't support me. If that person comes in to speak to your team and tell stories about the research they've done, how do they highlight the impact of their research when there's forces arrayed against them to have that impact? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a really challenging. And I have had interviews where folks have revealed some of those more negative challenges. I I would say like, it, it can sometimes feel like a person puts up all the barriers and just says like, I couldn't really do anything versus somebody saying like, this was the situation. This is how I tried to take my work and have influence at the level I could influence, right? So, you know, maybe it's getting the one person to shift their perspective and and get them to like, listen in on the interview. I don't know, whatever that small measure of change or influences, I think focusing on that is better than just saying, you know, there's all these constraints and I couldn't do anything. That's good. I'm going to use all these. (laughs) Because we are, we're always doing storytelling. And I think, and just to kind of reflect on how we can most effectively communicate overcoming challenges, having success, success at different levels, all that context. Yeah. I think is a really good way of putting it. What are you seeing in terms of where people are coming from to research? Maybe it's helpful to describe like the folks on my team, just because that's, you know, who I'm interacting with. So one of them was actually in journalism for most of his career before transitioning into user experience research 
one of them was working in academia for a while, doing all kinds of different unrelated you know, research around philosophy and, and other things, and then transitioned into technology, actually, being a technology director for, again, a publication before transitioning into um, user research. One was a designer before making a transition, and one of them was actually uh, doing market research for consumer packaged goods companies. So all of them had career changes before coming uh, into the research side, which is interesting. Would you include yourself under that umbrella? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's just a fascinating artifact of what makes up our field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my, so I have an intern coming this summer and she, again, was more, she, she's been in the writing field. So she's been a professor, like an English professor and now working on her master's to transition into research. So yeah, a lot of, um, I think folks who come from like that writing, journalism, storytelling background, it's a really neat transition to see. Do you have a, any theories as to what is it about research that pulls people in from these different backgrounds? I think in that case, like th- there's an easy connection there where journalism folks, they are trying to uncover information. They're trying to understand people. They're trying to tell stories. So that makes sense. I think other folks, like the woman who was working more in technology and then the woman who was working more in design, and, and same with me, is that you find yourself drawn to the beginning of the process where you're really trying to understand the problem or you come into a project where you're delivering something where you didn't understand the people or the context and you've gone through that yourself and you want to, you've really drawn to like, how do I make sure this doesn't happen again? Or how do I learn more about this? And then people kind of stumble into it sometimes. You know, I've been identifying as a researcher for a long time and I always felt like, yeah, I stumbled into this, but that was more it felt like that was more common because the profession wasn't defined. We didn't have, let's say, the program at, at Institute of Design that, that you went through. Like, I don't think that existed. Mm-hmm. Or if it did, no one knew about it. So I feel like, oh, I came from this sort of prehistoric era where field was nascent. And so we had to kind of stumble into it. Mm-hmm. That's how it was being formed. And it's just fascinating to be many years later, decades later, and programs like yours and so many more. And yet you're characterizing a bunch of people with amazing skills and oriented towards different work and kind of transitioning into this. It's still what's going on. And I don't know if that may be how careers happen, regardless of what discipline or or business you're in. But I guess I always thought it was going to change. And it's just so curious that we still have this happening now in this field. At least from what I can see, like from the you know folks on my team and other folks I've interviewed recently, I think having that other kind of background or perspective is, gives them an upper hand in some ways because they bring a whole nother set of skills and perspective into the work they're doing. I've just found, yeah, just the way that people can craft those stories or the experiences that they can share help build like a, a, a bigger picture. Just different perspectives kind of bring them to this work and help them have kind of a point of view around certain things that is very interesting. I don't know if you're saying this explicitly, but I'm thinking as part of a team, when you have a range of other contexts or other skill sets that people bring in, even more so, even better, because you have some just diversity of, of frameworks and, and superpowers. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's awesome because, yeah, the team can build on each other. They have these different experiences. And right now, I'm actually like the next kind of skill set I'm hoping to bring in is somebody who has pretty solid background in mixed methods. So bringing in more of the quantitative, somebody who's done a lot more more quantitative work, but still really understands the qualitative approach as well. Because I think 
that's an area I don't have a lot of expertise in um, around quantitative research. And so I'm hoping to continue to add to the team in that way. So just a, a slight topic shift here and, and pulling in some of the things that you've talked about uh, when you're kind of giving the the story of different roles that you'd had. You described at one point moving into, I think it was at Project 202, like moving into leading a team and then that being, I think, a defining characteristic of the work that you'd been doing then and since then. Research leadership is new-ish, relatively speaking. It was kind of the impetus for me in this podcast like, hey, here's kind of a new role that we just didn't have. Again, if you go back a number of years, do you have, you know, a perspective on what research leadership looks like? Is it different than other kinds of leadership? Yeah, I don't know that it's different than other kinds of leadership. I think there's all the similar aspects, right? You're trying to sort of set a vision of, you know, who you are and what value you provide. You're working with folks who, I I love being a manager. I love understanding people's goals and their career paths and the things that they're trying to do and figuring out how do we match that with the needs of the organization? How do we help someone sort of grow and get the opportunities that they want at the same time that we're providing, you know, the value that we need to provide to our company? And so that's one of my favorite things. And then thinking about, I guess, as a leader, you need to really, again, understand the business, understand um, and keep in contact with a lot of different folks know how to grow your team, how to think about, I guess, one of the big decisions with research that might be a little bit different, um, but is similar to things like data science or QA. It's like you can have a centralized team or you can have a distributed team. Um, There's something about how you organize yourself and how you work with parts of the organization that the leader really has to have a vision around that and the kind of Again, I would call it like principles, but like, what are the values or principles for how your team is going to operate? So like one of the things uh, we talk about a lot is we don't want anyone to have any barriers to interact with us. So we don't require, you know, somebody to go through a form or put in a request or anything like that. We do office hours. You can ping us on Slack. You can, you know, there's all these different ways that you can interact with us. Um, So I think kind of setting those values for how your group operates is really important. Given that you're someone who's done research many points in your career, does that influence or help define the way that you approach being a manager for research? That's a good question. I mean, I think just trying to think about, I don't know if this is a good example, but when we were a little bit over a year ago, like helping figure out what we wanted to do, our goals for the next year, this was actually driven by one of the researchers, Liz. She created a survey and went and did you know one-on-one interviews with everybody on the team. So we actually kind of researched the situation that was happening in order to determine, let's say, do we need to provide more education around you know writing a discussion guide or something like that? So we kind of used our own approach of research to understand our own situation, come up with ideas and prioritize them. I guess that's that skill of listening and talking to people and being able to analyze a lot of information and synthesize it is a skill set that I find valuable every day. The ability to kind of like take that synthesis and make a plan, organize it and prioritize things has been very handy as a leader. So there's an example of superpowers that researchers have that you have as you know given your career that influence and support your management work. Do you have other superpowers or things in your background that maybe that we haven't talked about that you find yourself drawing from? It's a good question. I don't know if it's from my background or just like 
my personality or, or what exactly, but I just say like being able to simplify complexity into really clear communications, whether that's written or, you know, a slide deck or whatever it is, is something that I've honed over time, right? It's, it's something that I, especially like being a consultant and then, you know, research, like how do you, how do you take all this information and how do you put something in front of somebody that they're going to be able to remember, respond to, or, you know, kind of take in. So thinking about that. And then I think too, just like researchers have to have to have a plan, (laughs) right? Like you're going in to do research. You have to, there's a lot of like logistical things. There's a lot of um, strategic things too. And I think being able to both think high level and also think, you know, tactically are really important. So okay, we need to get, you know, in in six months, we need to understand the answer to this huge question. How are we going to get there? I think researchers, you know, have to figure out how they're going to get to that end goal. Design is the same way, right? You have to kind of break things down into manageable chunks and kind of make this plan. And I think that's, um, that's a really good skill. Like a lot of people, I don't want to say a lot of people, but I I think some people have, you know, visions of something they want to get to, but don't have a way to kind of break it down and figure out how to move to that vision. Um, and I think researchers and designers are skilled in that. It just makes me wonder, you know, if we sort of go see researchers in their off work lives, like what kinds of life skills would we see or what kinds of applications to some of these researcher strengths would we see in the non-work parts of people's lives? Because I think you're right. And we've talked about things like storytelling and complexity and planning. And do those things manifest or do we shut those things off? Or or are there other things that kind of come to the fore when we're, quote, on the job? I mean, I guess the other thing I see from a lot of researchers and and I love is just their curiosity in other areas. So what obscure thing are they off kind of looking at, reading about, learning about that they then, you know, take something from and bring it back into their work? Like, I, I always find that fascinating. I think that's what I loved about school, you know, grad school, undergrad, where you're learning about all these different subjects. And all of a sudden you find that something about acupuncture and and the philosophy like applies to a design project that you're doing. So I think, you know, having those curiosities and finding those connections are really important. Is there anything else that you think we should talk about that I didn't ask you about? I can't think of anything, to be honest. <laughs> I think that was really fun to, to share all those different things. I, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I'll throw another one at you then. Okay. When you think about whether it's the field or you and your team at Duo, what do you sort of look forward to in the future? Where do you think things are heading? Maybe if we say five years, do you have any vision or anticipation for where we might be at that point? Wow. Five years is a long time. I don't know. I, I, I find those questions really, really challenging. I guess thinking about where my team at is at is one thing or just the field in general. You know, I, I do see, you know, there's so there's so many evolutions around different aspects of technology that are happening right now that I don't think we quite know how, how they're going to play out, you know, around like augmented reality and voice-assisted technology and all these things that I don't think we've quite embedded in how we do our work. Like, I don't know if there's going to be some different ways of us interacting with people. I mean, just even thinking about the current climate right now, you know, we're trying to figure out how to gain contextual information when we cannot be in context with people. 
So is there a way to get that kind of closeness or realness with people in a way that is different than being on site with someone or different than, you know, like a diary study tool or something like that? I I don't know what that might look like. So I think that's one thing. I think I'm also, you know, there's a lot of folks who practice like mixed methods. That's still an area that I feel like we still have quite a separation between qualitative and quantitative specialties and not quite figuring out how to bridge that gap. Um, So that's something that I want to watch for in the future. Like, how do we really take advantage of lots of data that we have access to that could help us make decisions and learn? I'm trying to think what else. I don't know. I don't know if those are very good answers, but... (laughs) They're they're great answers because my question was a terrible one. It said, what's the future going to be? And you said, well, here's what I'm going to be looking for, which is a good researcher response. Yeah, here's... Here's the signals I'll be paying attention to. It's it's interesting. I really, I just, I don't know. I mean, I, I think research is so needed. I, I hope that we evolve where we are not, there's always, there's kind of like, you know, UX research. And then like my team, we call it design research. There's research that's, you know, in the service of sort of like product UI versus like research that's, you know, much more looking at, you know, the customer journey, the customer lifecycle more holistically. And there's a lot of areas that have been developed in other countries, I would say, like in service design aspects in like the UK and Australia and New Zealand that just aren't quite here in the US. So that's something that, you know, I, I hope that researchers are included more or we, we get that influence in other areas like public works, right? Like government departments that really impact people's lives. Like I think there's a whole spectrum of things that researchers could have a big impact on that we're just not, those just, those areas just aren't really built up here yet. So it's, it's a demand issue, not a supply issue. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. This has been very interesting and lots to think about. I just really appreciate you sharing so much about, you know, your own path and all the great work that you've been doing at Duo Security. And thanks again for being on the podcast. Well, thank you, Steve. I enjoyed the conversation as always. And um, yeah, look forward to next time we get to catch up. Thanks for listening. Tell your colleagues about Dollars to Donuts and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find Dollars to Donuts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google Play and all the places where pods are catched. Visit Portugal.com slash podcast to get all the episodes with show notes and transcripts. And we're on Twitter at Dollars to Donuts. That's D-O-L-L-R-S-T-O-D-O-N-U-T-S. Our theme music is by Bruce Todd.